Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Giovanni Rocco on Giovanni's Ring. First, I wanted to remind you to check out booksonpod.com. You can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by subject. For instance, select the history or current events and politics category for episode number 127 with Yon Grillo on Blood Gun Money. This is Yoan Grillo, author of Blood Gun Money, and you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Giovanni Rocco was an undercover law enforcement officer for most of his 26-year career, culminating in the successful infiltration of one of America's most violent and long-standing mafia families. And he's just written the story of that crazy experience. It's called Giovanni's Ring, My Life Inside the Real Sopranos. Giovanni, thank you for the time. How you doing today? All right, Trey. How are you? Doing good, man. I got to tell you, from getting to read this book, uh, you are not exaggerating. You are living the life of the real Sopranos. Why did you decide now, uh, about a half decade after all this went down, that now was the time for you to write and release this book? Well, now was the time. It was therapeutic for me in the beginning. I just wrote notes down, you know, in order to process it for my mental health. Uh, and it just turned into I met the right guy at the right time. My co-author, Doug Schofield, I had known him previous. He was an author. And it kind of just matched up. Timing was right. And I decided to go ahead and do it. You grew up in Bayonne, New Jersey. How did your upbringing there help prepare you for uh, living the mob life? I was a street kid. Um, you know, Hudson County, New Jersey, is uh, it's very Soprano-esque. It's uh, the neighborhood that you see in the Sopranos. That's why I, part of the reason why I called my life inside the real Sopranos. Everything I grew up around was the mafia, was cops. I'm third generation cop. Uh, and just growing up around a mob, just they were in my neighborhood. I knew them. I knew the walk. I knew the talk. Uh, I knew the life. I, did, I wasn't drawn to it because my father was law enforcement. He was a solid cop. He was a good cop. And uh, they respected my father. And uh, I just knew it. I, I knew the identity. I, I kind of identified with those guys. I grew up in the street and uh, I wasn't drawn to it in a criminal way. But, you know, I understood that life. Did the fact that uh, you would have been third generation, is that what made you want to become a cop ultimately as well? Yeah, I mean, I talked about it in the book, but in the beginning of my my youth, um, I was anti-authority. Uh, I defied everything because of uh, my relationship with my dad. <laughs> it was it wasn't, uh, you know, a typical teenage kid. I was the, I was the black sheep of the family. I was the problem child. You know, everybody else was good students. I was the kid always wanting to run around the street and do wrong things or or, you know, hang out with the wrong people. And I was, you know, that I was drawn to out of fun, you know, that I did out of adrenaline, which spilled over into my career. So now I, I, I learned, uh, as again, in the book, I talked about the moment I knew I wanted to be a cop. I watched my dad make a collar on the way home from the Raiders of the Lost Ark movie. And uh, I watched him do that. And I realized that's that's when I felt that burning in my stomach or that that yearning in my chest that, yeah, I could do this. You know, it's good versus evil. I always took the I always took the good guy's side. So after you took the initial exam to see if you would qualify to become a cop, which you obviously did, you were actually sent to the Jersey City Police Academy. How was that training? That training was awesome. Uh, it wasn't your uh, your regular police academy. Um, you know, it wasn't so military driven. It was more laid back. They taught me how to be a street cop, which prepared me for the streets of Hudson County where I worked. Um, you know, they taught us the rules and regs and, you, you know, we didn't worry so much about how we were dressed as to how to survive in the street. So it was a great, uh, it was a great training I had during that time, you know, in the early nineties, that was 1990. 
So it definitely prepared me for the streets. What led you to going to the New Jersey State Police Narcotics Investigation School, which obviously advances your uh, career in a very different manner? Yeah, I got lucky with that. I came to I came to work one day and they they made me an offer, uh, asked me to do some undercover work early in my career, and I said, of course I would. I jumped at the opportunity. Um, you know, of course, when I became a cop, I, I didn't see myself working in uniform. I wanted to be a detective, but I was drawn to that narcotics. I was drawn to the street. I worked major cases, but you know, um, early on, I would say nine months in, maybe a year on a job, I was I was offered my first undercover. And that was it. That was, uh, I ran with it after that. Yeah. Yeah. I think you call it a turning point in your career when your chief asked you to do that, but you admit that you made a lot of mistakes early on because you hadn't received that official undercover training, including, uh, one that nearly got yourself killed, uh, killed during a DEA operation. I don't remember you going into detail there, but what exactly happened that literally nearly led to you losing your life? Yeah, there was a bunch of operations I should have never put myself into early on. Um, I, I was blessed. I had good informants back then. And my informants were the ones who saved my saved my butt a bunch of different times. And, uh, you know, thank God they had the street knowledge. I was a young kid at the time and I would I would throw caution into the wind where I had the ability to have a good informant with me. Somebody that was much older than me, um, you know, locked me in a room one time. And the guy said, you're not leaving until you do these drugs. And, you know, I didn't have the ability to talk my way out of it. Then I was a street kid. So I would rather fight my way out of it. And this guy. The informant that was with me, he kind of talked the guy down and de-escalated the situation. Mm. Um, but, you know, it didn't stop me. I went right into another one <laughs> and another one <laughs> and another one. I would put myself in uh, situations where I went behind locked doors. For You know, as the gang gangs progressed in the 90s, uh, we didn't have street gangs. Bloods and Crips weren't around back then as much as they are now. And as the gangs came into the, the early 90s, uh, they became more organized. And uh, I went into some buildings that were just locked down. You know, you went into a building to buy certain narcotics and the door was locked behind you. There were pit bulls chained to the door behind you. So if you try to run out and, you you know, you try to rob these drug dealers, a lot of guys thought they were going to get robbed. Or if you wound up being an undercover cop, they made sure you weren't going to leave without a good fight. So uh, I put myself into some situations. Back then, we used um, trans transmitters. We didn't use a lot of recording devices on our body. Times were different. We had to do reel to reel. So I would wear a transmitter and I had two different wires, one up my my back, one up my front. And uh, one was the microphone and one was the antenna for the transmitter. And the guys sitting out in the car, they'd be recording everything I said. So, uh, you know, a lot of different times my transmitter didn't work. I didn't know until I came out, things were about to pop off where they challenged me. And guys would say, you know, um, you know, are you a cop? And I would sit there and talk my way out of it before you knew it. I was okay. You know, one time I had a kid pull a gun on me, a small kid, and I was dying. I, I was dying to get out of the building. I couldn't wait for the operation to be over so I could take this kid and, you know, give him a little street justice and, and a little curbside adjustment. And uh, it turns out my microphone and my transmitter, it wasn't even working the whole time I went in. So just things like that, you know, it just escalated from there. Was there a technological advance throughout all this time that made the job much easier, that made it a little bit more foolproof, that uh, kept that technology from just failing on you unexpectedly in such a big moment like that? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, technology today is much different. I mean, I can't, without giving up too much for tradecraft reasons, I can tell you when I started working undercover, it was about the size, I don't know if your audience even knows the size of an A-track, uh, like a, a VHS tape or a beta tape. And this was the thing that you shoved down your pants and you had an antenna and a <laughs> wire coming up one side. 
you know, there wasn't a good place to hide something like that. Nowadays, you can hide and you can hide a microphone on an ant's on an ant's back if you really want to. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, the ant can be the microphone in a lot of cases now. Yeah, They've got these uh, these mechanical bugs now, apparently, in the military. So you finally got some actual undercover training in advance of you joining the FBI's La Cosa Nostra task force. What did their official training entail that? turned out to be very crucial for you going forward um well it was later in my career after i worked with the dea and then the fbi came calling and i started working for them that i decided to do full-time undercover work for them in order to be a full-time undercover for the fbi you had to go through their training um at that point in my career they thought i was pretty much broken uh i was so far gone doing things my way that i couldn't be trained but I, I begged and I pleaded for the seat and just to give me a chance. And I had some people step up and they they uh, they got the seat for me and I got the seat in the class. And it, it was not um, it was not a pretty train to go through uh, again without giving too much. They really don't want me talking too much about their training, but it was intense. It was a lot of uh, amped up, ramped up scenarios and just, you know, you, you negotiated for your life. Um, it was very it was very, uh, very intense. So when I left there, I had the communication skills. I had the rapport building skills. I had the de-escalation skills that I was lacking early in my career. And then from that point on, you were just launched into a different realm of this work. You know, you, you were able to carry yourself in a different way with confidence. And you understood the human side of things. Once you're able to understand human communication and how, to, how, how people tick, you know, no matter who it is, you know, you, you gauge things a little bit differently. When you're sitting with somebody in front of them, you're looking at their body language, you're looking at the way they're talking to you and communicating, and you can tell whether you have to maybe reel it in a little bit or cast it out, you know, turn it up. So I would turn my Giovanni Gatto up at times because I was around some real stone cold killers. And they, they, they knew if I didn't, if I didn't measure up to them, they could smell it like a dog. So these, you know, that kind of training, what they provided me was that that sent me into like the major leagues. It's major leagues versus minor leagues. We did it in baseball, hmm. you know, and there's only a certain group of those people in the major leagues that become the, the goats of our of our industry. You know, and I was blessed that I had been trained by some of the goats of the undercover world. So, you know, the guys that came before me, I learned from their mistakes. Now guys are learning from, from my mistakes. That's a great way to put it. And as you just mentioned, this was a result of you deciding to work undercover for the FBI full time. How did your wife, Anna, feel about this career move? Uh, she herself worked law enforcement and she advised me it was a very stupid idea. Um, <laughs> she, uh, and of course, I didn't heed her warning. She, she had worked some undercover work early in her career. And uh, when we met, she was still doing some, but take it or leave it. She was, I like to say she was smart enough to leave it. Um, she didn't have the training that I had. You know, you were, back then when I started working, you were picked for your attributes. You know, if you had a certain dialect or you had a certain look. Me, I had a certain look early on in my career. I look like a I look like a heroin addict, a skinny kid or, or, a, or a meth head with a big, long beard and hair. And my wife had certain, you know, she's a good looking lady. And that was her in. But uh, she knew she knew that life. She knew she said, look, they use us up. They use us, they get what they want out of us, and they throw us away. They put us in the trash. They're just going to, they're going to use you up, burn you out, and they're going to, that's it. It's going to destroy our life. Um, you know, I, I thought I had a handle on it, but she was right in the end. So was the very first assignment that you took when you went full time with this, was it what you end up describing in this book? Uh, which which one? With the uh, the first assignment I took was not the 
the first assignment, the, fir- the first no. assignment that you took that uh, uh, that led to you eventually meeting up with Charlie. I mean, were you starting on the same case from the get go and just trying to work your way up from there? No, no, I had done a bunch of cases over the years with the FBI. I'd work and worked uh, like high classified cases. I worked street cases. I worked white collar politicians, white supremacists. I, I did domestic terrorists, um, international terror groups. So I had a lot of cases behind me. And this case with Charlie Horse, um, that was only a narcotics deal that I went in to support a guy that was doing a deal down in Atlantic City. And I had I showed up for bona fides because I have what we call that stink on me, the street. You know, if you bring me to a deal, it's like maybe maybe you look a little more white collar than I do. Or I could turn my I could turn it up to 10 and really be a street guy. And I had that ability. So people would ask me to come into their cases as a cameo hmm. for bona fides to them. And when I did that, bad guys would go, OK, I get it. I get it. You know, Trey, you're, you're a pretty polished guy. You're a nice guy. And I don't know who you are, but this guy Giovanni over here. All right. He's backing you. I'll do deals with you. So that's all it was. I showed up one night for a, a narcotics deal. And uh, the guys who were the dealers showed up and they wound up being some low level De Cavacante associates, like super low level. And they bit, you know, they bit and they thought I was a gangster's gangster. They made something up in their mind. They went back and told everybody else in the neighborhood that they were doing deals with this guy. And uh, that's kind of it just took a life of its own. It wasn't intended to happen. Hmm. So, yeah. You admit that it was tough to separate the two personalities, who you were in real life and who you had to become in going undercover. Did you go through any ritual to really help you wind down at the end of the day and turn back into a husband and father who could just go home and just kind of let it go? I did. Um, I, I wish that they gave us more psychological training for that, but I was a, at least a little more mature in my career that I came up with the reason for the switch. My switch, my mental switch was my pinky ring. You know, um, that was what I took off. When I pulled in the driveway, it was a government issued ring that I had gotten and I put it on because of this case. It wasn't my personal ring. Uh, and that was my switch. I said to myself, okay, when I take this ring off, there's my off switch. You know, when I walk in my house, I'm I'm Giovanni Rocco. I'm not Giovanni Gatto. I'm not that guy in the mafia. I'm not that guy in the street. I'm not that animal I'm portraying myself to be. I would never expose my kids or my family to a guy like that. And, uh, you know, I, ha- I thought I had it for a while. You know, I-, I never went back in my house until I was mentally ready. But, you know, as I saw later on, three years, well, just shy of three years, that's a long time to live this life. You know? And uh, I describe it as eventually I thought I would never let this guy in my house. But when, when Giovanni Rocco went to work, you know, Giovanni Gatto came home. You know, that's the way it was. I, the ring thing didn't work after a while. I thought it was, but, you know, I found out later on it didn't. How did James Gandolfini's death make your alter ego difficult to let go on one particular evening? Um, well, that's when, unfortunately, James Gandolfini passed away in 2013. I think it was during this case. And, um uh, you know, everybody was trying to honor him and, and respect the whole Sopranos thing. And they were replaying the Sopranos on HBO at the time. And I had come home from one of my Vegas trips and I was living in New York and Las Vegas at the same time. And I came home from and everybody was asleep like they normally were. And I said, OK, I'll, I'll just grab a cup of tea. I'll try to sit down. I'll try to decompress, forget about the day I just had. And then uh, I would click the TV on and boom, there's the Sopranos and Unfortunately, it was a tribute to James Gaddafini, and it was just a series of, of shows one after the other. Of course, who, who doesn't get sucked into watching The Sopranos? I'm from Jersey, you know, so I'm not going to turn it off because, you know, I love it. And they were they were paying homage to him. And of course, I watched it and then 
I guess about a good hour in, maybe 45 minutes, I realized like I was amped up. There's no way I'm even going to bed because it hit me. Like, this is the life that I'm living. I just left these guys. Like, yes, the Sopranos are actors and they're portraying these guys. I just left. I think that was right around the same day they went on a record with me in the pork store. And, you know, I met the boss of bosses and I went on record with these guys. And it was just the timing couldn't have been worse for me, Trey. And, uh, yeah, so, and then it was the next day I just got up and did it all over again. Hmm. So your goal is obviously, uh, once you get to a certain point, to get as close to the top as possible while you're continuing to gather intelligence and evidence. Who is Charlie Stango, and how did you level up to become so close with them? And also, just how big of a deal was this to get close to Charlie like you were? Um, Well, Charlie Stango was in prison when his case started. He was just being paroled. Uh, He was doing a murder murder rap he was doing like a 10 or 20 year bid for that he was just being paroled and i just happened a guy that i met down atlantic city and did the drug deal with was his nephew and uh, he was a street kid he was he was known to be a tough kid in the street and um because i was hanging around with him and doing business of course it grabbed everybody's attention and uh as charlie came out the nephew had asked you know he wanted to show his uncle that he was doing these things in the street he's kind of making making a name for himself and uh he used me to do that he said that he was doing work with this guy and, you know, this is who it is. And Charlie started looking into us uh, early on. Charlie gave us permission after I was introduced to him. He didn't quite take to me right away. He just uh, he said, listen, I'm moving to Nevada. I got my parole moved. So I'm going out there and uh, you and my nephew can continue what you're doing in the street. I'll allow it. I'll allow you to do what you're doing in my neighborhoods. And, uh, you know, I'll keep an eye on you. So he, he left for Nevada. And uh, he asked the Gambino guys to keep an eye out on me and his nephew and see what we were doing. And then when the time was right, he came calling. You know, greed is greed is a to criminals and to gangsters. Greed is everything. You know, you got to make your money. So when you make your money in the street, everybody wants to stick their hands in your pocket. And he eventually does personalize that relationship. And that first phone call with him, he told you, you're going to fly my flag. What did he mean by that? Uh, yeah, that was um conversation I didn't expect you know when he bit and he he bought into it and he invested in me uh, he decided that our relationship was going to take the next step and he explained to me okay um, after he did his assessments of me and had me come out to Vegas and meet him um, he basically said listen this is the way it goes Uh, he wanted to have an in-person conversation he didn't want to have a conversation on the phone so he had me fly out to Vegas and uh, we sat in a cabana we watched the Kentucky Derby together and he said okay this is the way it works this is how we do things. This is how the family operates. This is our flag. Uh, from this point forward, you're going to fly our flag and you're going to fly it on my behalf. And basically anywhere you go, anybody you meet in this life or any other criminal in the world, you let them know who you are, let them know who you're with. And that gives me bona fides. When you're able to go to the next meeting and say to a guy in another family or in the same family, this is who I am and this is who I'm with, that elevates you. That gives you power in the street. That gives you a sense of being somebody and a connected guy, you know, not just an associate. So you're starting to get close to him, and then you get a random phone call in the middle of the night. He leaves you a message in March of 2014, essentially saying to lose his number. In the short term, you couldn't really figure out why. What sort of issues did this cause out front for you, and then also behind the scenes with this investigation? Uh, Well, initially... The message was a cold-hearted message. Uh, it was a message left for me in the middle of the night. I was back in, in New York time, 
and he was out in Vegas and he just called me up in the middle of the night. I got this crazy message. The phone didn't ring and I got the voicemail and he was telling me, uh, out of the blue, uh, unprovoked, nothing happened. Just, you know, listen, it's me. Don't ever call me again. Whatever you're doing with you, you and my nephew are doing, I want nothing to do with it. And uh, that's it. And it turned out he had a bad dream. He had some kind of a night terror. And uh, that's what he explained later on. But because of that, it just sent everything into a tailspin. By then, I was pretty solidified with him. Um, we realized where the case was going. Uh, we had a um, an organized crime task force was now running the case. And, you know, the supervisor, Anthony Zamponi at the time, he had stepped up to keep the case alive because a lot of guys internally inside the bureau, there were some people that started claiming there might be a safety issue. You know, when you're dealing with a stone cold killer, a guy that some guys might be capable, but if you know a guy has done murders before, it's not somebody you want to take a meeting with if he's doubting you. So there was some safety issues there. And uh, I just felt, you know, let me try to mitigate it. Let me give it some time and see what happens. So I, I, I kept the relationship going from a distance. And then when the time was right, we, we got face to face with him again. So after you start making trips to Vegas, you nearly had your cover blown at your daughter's soccer tournament of all places. What the heck happened there? So, uh, I made it home. It was a weekend. They had a tournament and it was a huge statewide tournament. And I thought, okay, I'll be able to decompress for a little bit. I left everything behind. You know, Charlie thinks I'm traveling for work. He thinks I'm doing some deals out, you know, maybe out of state with some other guys. And, uh, I gave them all the impression that I was going to be gone for a little couple of days. And, uh, I decided, yeah, this is a good time. I'll, I'll just go relax and spend some time with my family. And, uh, between games, you know, it's a tournament. So, between games, I sat, we were eating lunch, and before you know it, here's a guy walking towards me from another family, and it wound up being a guy that I was meeting, and he was looking into me on behalf of Charlie from time to time, and uh, he came walking right at me. And I realized this was, we call each other gooms, and this was my gooms, and he came walking towards me, and I quickly flanked him. I got out of my chair and, and left my family behind, and I came around the side of him and gave me, hey, what's up? And uh, it wasn't a pleasant greeting because he didn't, he knew I didn't have kids in my life. He knew I didn't have, I didn't live in New Jersey and he wanted to know what I was doing there. It became very aggressive in the beginning. It was a hand to the chest. And are you following me? Why are you here? You know, it became very, very, very standoffish. And then I explained to him, I just pulled a story out of my rear end real quick, which we're trained to do. And, uh, you know, he bit, he understood why I was there. And I, I lived to fight another day on that. But thank God, you know, my wife and I, we, we were always situationally aware. So we always did those things in case there was a, a defendant in one of her cases or a defendant in one of my cases. You always had to be prepared. So thank God we talked about it and practiced those things because uh, she grabbed my kids and pulled them the other way. And I just started taking a walk down the road and, and uh, my parents were there visiting. My father picked me up. And he brought me back to my house and that was it. From that point on, I, was, I never left. I never went out in public with my family again. Does your family still vividly remember that day? Oh, yeah, very much so. Mm -hmm. Another important character in this book is a guy by the name of Louis the Dog. Who the heck is Louis the Dog? Luigi Oliveri is Louis the Dog. Uh, Louis the Dog had an upbringing in the neighborhood. He never left the neighborhood. Um, so if you think of a, scene, uh, you know, a set of The Sopranos, that's what he lived on. He never left that neighborhood of uh, Elizabeth, New Jersey, Peterstown. He never left. He, uh, he did all his business growing up out of there. Uh, there was a boss who was an acting boss at the time when he was coming up and he, uh, he used to drive him around. He was his driver 
And that's, he kept close. He, he was dedicated to the life since birth, I guess, since, you know, he grew up in it. And that's the choice that he made. And he had worked his way up. I was introduced to him early on uh, after I stu- started doing some drug deals with Charlie's nephew. And of course, like I said, greed is greed. Once Luigi got wind of Jimmy doing deals, it's like, what is he doing? Who is he doing? He can't do these deals by himself. And then next thing you know, he wants in. He wants to meet me. He wants to sniff me out and see what who I am and what I'm what I'm about. And uh, he was a little standoffish in the beginning. But again, you know, we convinced him who I was and, and he bit. And we started doing some swag together, which was like, you know, counterfeit stuff, merchandise stuff that fell off the back of a truck or something that was hijacked. And, you know, he had a little bit. I had a little bit. Um, I was doing some drug deals with some guys that were in his crew, unbeknownst to me. Uh, Later on, he admitted that that was the case. And, you know, he was very skeptical of me in the beginning because he even asked me. He was smart enough to say, let me ask you something. Where you been? You're about the same age as me, give or take a few years. But. You know, you walk like us, you talk like us, but we don't know you. Like, where do you come from? So there was some hurdles that we jumped through. And I explained in the book how, you know, um, my history and my past, my childhood. You know, I explained to this guy, look, I didn't I didn't aspire to be a gangster. I don't want to live your life. And I'm here to make money like every other criminal out in the street. So let's make money together and we'll be we'll get along just fine. And he bet. So considering the time. Considering the type of character that he was, it was a bit surprising to learn that he had been had become a made man uh, throughout the time that you knew him. What impact did this have on your relationship with Charlie, though? So I guess early on when I started doing business with Luigi and things were going good, Charlie wasn't quite involved with me yet. He was just kind of on, on the sidelines watching from afar, watching from Nevada. And now you got different guys in the family reporting back to me and Charlie's getting wind of the fact that Giovanni and Luigi are making money. So Charlie at this point has been bumped up to a capo. He's a captain in the family. So Louis just an associate at this time. So for Louis to be an associate, he tried to stake a claim on me because when Charlie came back around and he says, okay, Giovanni's going to be with me. Louis kind of put up a little bit of a stink and said, no, he's mine. He's with me. He's going to be with me. And he just assumed that. So, uh, they actually had a sit down openly one night and it caused Charlie to come get on a plane, come to New Jersey, go to the neighborhood. He had to go in front of the administration, the bosses. He had to pitch his case. Louie had to pitch his case. And they actually fought for me. You know, whose whose crew was I going to, you know, was I going to be in? And uh, of course, Charlie's a captain. Charlie's an old school gangster. Charlie's a gangster's gangster. Like he's got a history. Louie might be like, but Charlie's got juice and Charlie won. You know, it was rigged. It was probably rigged before the meeting even happened. You know, so Charlie won. I was his. That did not leave a good taste in Luigi's mouth because he wanted me to be with him. And he tried to convince me as such before the meeting. And, uh, you know, he lost. So it left a bad taste. So when the family started falling apart a little bit because the boss, John Riggy, he was going to pass the torch and step down. And uh, Luigi quickly got himself made before that happened. So uh, Luigi got made and the ceremony that took place was not a traditional ceremony. So the, some of the guys, some of the old school gangsters in the family did not want to acknowledge his the way he got his button, we call it or they call it. You know, the way he got made was not the way you should do it. He broke a lot of rules. Uh, John Riggy, the boss, was an old school gangster. So he bent the rules for this. You know, he didn't have to. You know, he thought I could do whatever I want, I guess. And. Luigi walked around like he was a made guy, and they did, they did not acknowledge such. And that left a bad taste in everybody's mouth. 
when I think, of, as you point out in the book, uh, to walk around like a truly made guy is somebody who's not being braggadocious about it. And he was the opposite of that, right? Yeah, he was the opposite. He walked out with his chest puffed out. And uh, it caused some grief between he and I because I didn't show him respect one time. And, um, you know, he actually called me out on it. He called me to a meeting one time to do some business together. And I didn't acknowledge the fact. I didn't know. I didn't actually know. The case agents forgot to tell me that he, he had gotten his button. So uh, I guess he figured I knew through the rumor bill and I didn't respect him enough. And uh, that was a meeting that didn't go very well between us. I was very standoffish and I was very uh, I was very inconsiderate to him. Look, even though you had a job to do, I'm guessing it felt pretty good being the hot date that uh, the two big time mobsters are fighting over for. Right. Even though Charlie comes out on top, that had to have felt okay. like you were doing your job pretty well. Right. It did. It felt good. You know, it felt it gave you satisfaction that you were building a good case. You're making great tapes. The tapes were phenomenal tapes and it's great evidence. But on your mental side, it's just taking toll because you're like, what am I got my, you know, <laughs> I just went down this other tailspin. I survived that. Now I'm getting in the water over here, going down another one over here. It's just like, you know, you always felt like you were drowning. And it was just one thing after the other. And then once you got the dust settled and you got everything figured out and everybody's happy, happy the dust kicked all back up again. And then it's another issue, something new, somebody's pissed off at somebody and, you know, they're going to go at it again. And if you fall on on the wrong side of that, and remember, these are made guys. So you're not a made guy. So if there's an issue and they make up and they decide, listen, let's just put this behind us. You're a made guy. I'll acknowledge it. I'm a captain administration. Let's say they all just powwowed and got together. All right, let's just forget all of this nonsense. What's the one thing that's causing a problem, Giovanni? So what would you do? You cut out the cancer. You just get rid of it. So there was always that. I was always afraid that these, this neighborhood of gangsters, they would all come together again, make amends, forgive it, forgive and forget, and get rid of Giovanni. That was always. A, and one of the Gambino guys in the meeting reminded me of that, too. He always reminded me, listen, we might not ever know when the day comes. We might just hit a pop. If we're lucky, we hit a pop. He says, I don't know how it goes. I've been on the other side. And the guy actually described me. He says, I've been on the other side of it. I don't know how it ends. I don't know what it feels like, but hopefully it'll be quick. You know, so when guys are saying that to you in your ear and it's, that stuff is festering in your brain when you're trying to have a meeting, you know, it's uh, and then all these gangster movies you watched in the past and all these. I, I worked a lot of OC investigations in the past. This is not my first time with the La Cosa Nostra. You know, I worked other cases with them in, you know, not infiltrating to this degree, but you, I knew the life. I watched the treachery. I, I worked homicides. Considering that threat was always there, and as you talked about a little bit earlier, a lot of times there were threatening conditions that you were walking into. How were you able to remain so calm to where nobody ever truly suspected uh, that you were doing this undercover job like you were? Well, my training, you know, my training was my my sense of growing. Number one, you know, I called the University of Bayonne. Growing up in Bayonne, there was a lot of hostility at times. So if I saw things pop off, I worked in restaurants, I worked in trucking companies. I worked when I was 15 years old, I was working with guys that were on parole for murder, you know, loading trucks with them in the summertime. So I, I knew de-escalation tactics. I knew how to, to what we call, you know, co-regulate, regulate your own breathing and then how to get somebody else to calm down. Uh, so I was able to control Charlie at times, you know, sometimes he would scare me because if I couldn't control him, he'd always remind me I kill more people by accident. So I had to remember that. So I knew 
that yin and yang. I knew when to push a little bit. I knew when to turn it off and I got to back down and cow down. Um, you know, for instance, when he left me that crazy message and then he eventually called me back, I couldn't be nothing more than, you know, I, I was a victim. I was a scared little boy when he called me back, you know, because I needed to do that. That's part of my routine. That's what at that time, that's, I'm sorry, I didn't call you. What, you know, you, I got your message loud and clear. You know, I was begging, almost begging for my life. And he, I made him say, no, listen, forget it. You know, I made him explain to me what that dream was. So that's the art, the art of deception that we're trained in. Uh, you knew when to, when to push and when to pull. And that gets him to gain trust in you. And over time, he gains enough trust that he goes to bat for you with the family. What was that first day like after Charlie goes to bat for you with the family that does at least a little bit more to ensure your safety. Yeah. I mean, once he stuck a claim in me, I knew he, once he, he came in and uh, he made another trip to New Jersey and, and went on a record with me and not making me a made guy in any way, shape or form. But when he did that and he wanted the bosses to meet me, it was almost like he wanted to introduce his kid to them. You know, this is my kid. This is he's with me. He's with us now. Uh, there was a formal introduction. I mean, there was a whole thing at this at this particular business. I'll call it the pork. So it was half of it was a deli and half of it was a a, a butcher shop, and it it was like Satrials in, in the Sopranos, and uh, everybody waited outside. You know, I came around a corner, and I came around a corner is like driving onto the set of a of a mafia movie, and they're all there dressed to the nines because the bosses are coming. They're all coming, and they're all here because of me. They're all here for Charlie. Charlie called these meetings. Charlie called me there. And when I came around the corner, you know, um, my heart was pounding out of my chest. And then I relaxed and I did the meeting and, you know, everything was fine. And they made it so. And the bosses met me and the underboss said, OK, you know, if any problems, here's my number. Take my number. You're going to represent Charlie now since you're going to be with us. This is how it's going to go. And uh, now I had direct access to the underboss if I needed it, you know. So that gives you a lot of juice. From that point on, uh, I was Charlie's kid and he knew it. Charlie walked around, his chest puffed out. It's his almost, uh, you know, it's his almost a, a pride of a father. Being, you know, he was proud of me as if I was his son. And that was it. From that point on, he couldn't be more happy. And he sent me into meetings, just unprovoked meetings, called me up, go here, go to New York, go here, go do this, go do that. There were times when I had to pump the brakes because I knew if I went to this meeting, it would just be way too over the top. It's going to go down another, another rabbit hole that the case can't handle. I didn't have enough agents, you know. He wanted to put me into guys in different families and put me into guys on, you know, on Mulberry street, in New York, that guys that I knew once I went down there, there's no coming back. I'd be, I'd be far gone. So, um, but yeah, I, I left there with a sense of power. I, I'd lie if I, I said, I didn't have a sense of, I had juice. I mean, you know, he now started building a crew around me. You know, he was, I was doing the work of a soldier from that point on, you know, yeah. he had guys reporting to me on a daily basis and, before you knew it, I had a crew of guys coming to me every day, reporting to me on his behalf. With Charlie going to bat for you like that, you end up making more frequent trips to Vegas, understandably. It was, I think, in late 2014 or early 2015 that you make one particular trip to Vegas that gets Charlie further into your dealings. What exactly happened there? Um, I did. I think I think you're referring to when I brought some guys out to Vegas with me. Yep. Um, you know, he, he had me he had me running like crazy. By this point, I was running into so many different families, carrying messages, being introduced to guys. 
I had met some guys out in Vegas. I met guys in New York. I, I mean, I was being plugged in everywhere. And he was doing it because he was happy to be back in the life. And he was using me as a vehicle to keep in touch with the life. So uh, he couldn't he couldn't take these meetings, some of these meetings, because he's on parole. You know, he's not allowed to meet with convicted felons. But here we are one time in, out in Vegas, and I'm meeting 19 guys. Most of them are convicted felons, and he just doesn't care. I mean, he wants so bad into this life again that he's sitting down with these guys. And here he is introducing me as his kid. So, uh, you know, I, I realized he's going to start looking sideways at me if, if, if everything I'm doing is under his direction. So I started doing some stuff and bought myself some time. I needed some time to recharge my own batteries at home. I knew I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't being a husband and a father. So I figured I'd buy myself some time and make it seem like I was doing some drug deals with some guys from my old life, the bikers. And I came up with an idea and I said, all right, I'm going to go out to Vegas and I'm going to bring these two guys with me. Hard pipe hitting guys like, you know, they look like outlaw bikers. And my buddy Dutch came out, my other buddy. And, um, you know, I told Charlie why I was out there. It was an unannounced trip out there. And he sat me down at breakfast and he asked me what I was doing out there. And I told him, I'm not going to tell you. It's, I'm just out here relaxing. And he goes, I know what you're doing. You're doing something. I said, no, nah, no, Skip, I'm not. No, it's not like that. I said, I don't want to talk about it. And uh, he says, uh, he, he asked his, his girlfriend, his wife, to leave the table. And she left and he got mad and he, he became almost enraged and said, now nah, I want you to tell me what you're doing out here. I know you're not out here hanging out with your friends. What are you doing? And I stood my ground. I said, Skip, I'm not having this conversation with you. It's for your good and my good. I'm not, I'm not talking to you about it, but just know I'm making money. That's what you need to know. I'm out here. I'm doing some things. And he insisted. I want to know what you're doing. I said, okay, here's what I'm doing. I'm doing, I'm brokering a deal. I got these guys out here. And as a matter of fact, they're here eating breakfast. They're here in the restaurant with us right now. They're only a couple feet away. So I asked, you know, he saw these two animals sitting there and it was, couldn't have been better. And uh, I walked them around after we ate breakfast and I offered, I said, you know, would you come and meet my best friend and my, who is considered my only family? I have my cousin. And he says, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be great. I'd love to meet them. Yeah, your family, Giovanni, anything for you, I'll meet them. And we came around the corner of this restaurant inside the Mandalay Bay. And as we came around the corner, he sees these two sitting there. And he just stopped short in his tracks because he knew. And he goes, no, 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 no. Maybe another time. So we're talking about that's my family. Come meet my cousin. That's my cousin and my best friend. These guys I, I ride and die with. He says, no, no, no. Listen, uh, this isn't a good time. Maybe another time we'll go out for a drink. About 10 minutes after I leave and he left, he calls me up and he's just blasts into me. What are you doing? You can't be there with those guys. Those guys are outlaws. They can't be in that. You guys are being looked at by everybody. It's bad enough that me and you are being looked at by the law out here. But now you got these guys walking around a high, high end place like that. You got to put them downtown on Fremont Street. He says, you can't be in that hotel. So he bit. I knew he bit. And that bought me some time. And eventually he knew that I was doing drug deals with those guys. And, and he wanted a piece. Like I said, greed is greed. And uh, eventually he came knocking and he's like, how much money are you making with these guys? And I want, I want a piece of it. So, yeah. That's the, that's the uh, Trump card. Whenever you need to appeal to these guys, just talking about uh, how it's going to make you more money, right? You do. It's sometimes you got to watch because that makes you look, if you do it at the wrong time, it can make you look like a rat, hmm. somebody that's desperate or worse off, somebody that's trying to set you up. So you can't always be about money, you know, because if everything is money, you know, you got to build relationships too. You have to have that that connection. You know, I have to have that personal because again, in the underworld it's different, Trey. You know, if if I got to pay my bills today and I'm short cash, I might like you, 
but today's the day I robbed you because I got to pay bills. Mm. And you, you're the guy sitting with the cash. So guess what? You're, I'm punching your card today. And you don't know. In that world, that's the way it is. Street gangs, mafia, it doesn't matter who it is. If, if somebody's got, and that's how it is. I, I dealt with gangsters, street kids like that, 19-year-old kids. You know, it just so happens they like you a lot, but I got a cable bill I got to pay this month. So, you know, and it's due tomorrow and, I, and the fight's coming on this weekend. So I'm punching your ticket, you know, and it happens like that, a blink of an eye. That's wild. Uh, this next thing I'm about to ask you about is one of the craziest stories in the book. How did you accidentally end up smoking crack and coming within an inch of ruining the operation? <laughs> uh, well, I, I didn't smoke crack traditionally out of a pipe. So um, I pulled up in a driveway and I was with Charlie's son was with me. By that point, we were doing on the side. He and I were doing drug deals together and he was bringing dealers to me. And, you know, and we were doing some deals together. So uh, I insisted I got some uh, some bad product from somebody early on. And I insisted that I wanted it to be good quality stuff. And I'm not going to do business with a lot of these kids that aren't, you know, up to my standards. And um, he drove me to a house and he went inside. And then he comes outside and he waves to me, come in. Now, you got to understand, I know this kid's a capable kid. I know he's a shooter. I know he has a lot of street connections. And I know he has his Charlie's son. He's got Charlie's blood in him. So he's not afraid. He's not by any means a, a, a scared kid. So I got to be cautious with him. Now, mind you, this is also a kid who was put underneath me by his father. So I wasn't put under him. He was put under me. So when this kid called me, you know, he went inside. He was going to do the drug deal and bring this stuff out to me with the guy. And then the next thing you know, he's waving me into the basement. Come in, come in, come in. And I'm, now my mind is going, well, is this the day? Is this kid setting me up? What's going on here? I had no idea. So I walk into the basement and it was all for bona fides. He wanted me to trust him. So he brought me in the basement. And he introduced me to the guy who eventually wound up being in my crew. And he says, uh, listen, this is Johnny Balls. And this is the product he has. Cougine, I just want you to understand this is good stuff. And I wanted to show you. So Johnny wanted to show you that, you know, and they did this test. They did this thing with, you know, they, they burned a little bit of it. Uh, they cooked it up on a spoon and it's a, maybe it's we're in a basement, you know, it's a tight basement, Jersey basement and, you know, maybe six feet high. So there's not much room for the, the vapes to go dissipating. So as he's burning it and, you know, here's Whitey, Anthony, that's Charlie's son. And he's burning it on a spoon and he's trying to tell me how he's doing it. And he can't, he's trying not to breathe because he has to drop urine samples. He's on probation. I'm trying not to breathe because he's burning the, the, the Coke. And I'm like, dude, what are you doing? You're burning crack here. Like, you know, no, 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 no. I want to show you. I want to show you. And as he's doing, he messes it up. So now he tries it again and he burns a little bit more and he's cooking it up on a spoon. Before you know it, the vapes are starting to fill this basement up. It's the winter time. And then before you know it, Johnny turns around. He says, you're doing it wrong. Give it to me. I'll do it. And they do it a third time. So now by that time, they're all giggling. I'm sitting there going, oh, my, I'm trying not to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm trying not to talk. I'm trying not to breathe. But eventually you have to you have to breathe. You're in the basement. And uh, so, yeah, Anthony wound up. He wound up getting heart palpitations and uh, he, he thought he's having a heart attack. Oh, and then uh, he says, I think I'm having a heart attack. And then it was Johnny Bowles who goes, relax, relax. You just, you're breathing it in. It's like smoking crack. You just, you know, your heart's racing. And then I, I got in the car, not thinking most of the time I was holding my breath, but of course I must've inhaled some of this. So it's not like I was smoking crack with these guys. It was just, uh, you know, the second day, secondhand smoke that I was breathing in, but it did, it hit me on the way out. I mean, you know, about 10 minutes later after I left, I dropped him off at his car and I, I drove away in my Cadillac and 
you know, that stuff started kicking in and it was not a good feeling at all. So. Man, that is crazy. So at one point you go to Vegas at Charlie's request to meet up with some of the big dogs from other mob families. And the best intel that you gathered throughout the course of those couple of days was during Charlie's meeting with a guy who also had ties uh, not only with the uh, the family that you were there to meet up with, but he was also connected to the Gambinos as well. His name was Agi uh, Lapari, if I'm not mistaken. Who was he, and what was the most important piece of info that you gathered around this meeting? So Augie was uh, Augie was uh, connected to Genovese, um, and he was a longtime friend of Charlie's. And uh, you know, he kind of just laid it out how everything operates, how the families are connected. And it was shortly after that and this group of guys that I met from different families. Uh, and here I am having, you know, having socializing with three different families. And then later on, I was able to ask Charlie in our relationship, I was able to ask how, why are we doing this with other families? Why are we meeting with other Borgatas like this? And he would break it down to me and say, look, this guy here, he's, he's my longtime Goomba. That's how, that's how I do things with him. This guy over here, his father's a somebody. Now he's a, you know, he's an acting boss of this family. And he would explain, this is how we work. This is how we get things done. And then he would break it down and say, look, this is how the decavacantes, we fly our flag on our own, but we, we use the help of the Gambinos. So it was great intelligence, great intelligence for the Bureau to have that on tape to, you know, to solidify what they suspected anyway and kind of knew. But, you know, the mafia is still operating the way it always did. And that's tremendous intelligence for them. Uh, then I saw the relationships with Augie. Augie was Charlie's longtime friend and, you know, Charlie eventually, you know, sent me to with a message to Augie once he got back to Jersey. It wasn't a very pleasant message he sent me to him, but I had to do it anyway on behalf of Charlie. What was the message? Uh, to go do something particularly to his mother. <laughs> that's, <laughs> to a his very, own mother. that's a very uh, a judicious way to put it. OK, so in January of 2015, Charlie starts encouraging you to keep a close eye on our old friend Louis the dog and suggesting that you guys may actually be better off without Luigi around, uh, implying that he wants Luigi dead. Considering that you had this on tape, the FBI could have pulled a plug at that point on the operation. Why did they decide not to? Um, well, they trusted in me. And they trusted I had I had control over it. We were watching from afar. Um and he hit me upside the head with that one day. You know, I had had some bad interactions with Louis. Um, nothing that would ever require me doing such a deed to him and taking him out of the picture. But Louis kind of dug his own grave a little bit with the family. There was some incidents in there that I described in a book that he he rubbed the family the wrong way. He rubbed the administration. Like I said, the administration was changing hands at that time. And he was on the right side of John Riggy, the then sitting boss, but he wasn't on the right side of the, the new administration coming in. These were old school guys with old school values that were coming in uh, that didn't sit well the way Louis was claiming he was made. Some things that Louis did along the way, he had some missteps and uh, over overstepped his bounds a couple of times and demanded respect from these guys because now he was officially looking at himself as a me guy. And uh, it didn't sit well at all. With him. And then, of course, Charlie being Charlie, uh, my relationship with Luigi, Charlie wanted his pound of flesh. And then uh, we went to dinner one time and Charlie started sharing these stories with me that I just told you. And then I, I would sit there and listen. Wow, that's something, you know, well, you know, I had my little bit of a. So Charlie's trying to tell me, he goes, you know, well, they're trying to say we have to have a problem. And as I'm sitting there and at dinner and he says, uh, yeah, well, you used to have some problems with him. You know, you, you know, you don't get along with him. 
And I just agree with him. And he says, uh, you know, you had a problem. <laughs> what? He goes, you had a problem. I'm the problem. And the way he presented it, I took it as I'm, I'm a problem. And uh, he goes, no, you're the problem. He says, uh, about two days later, he, he came back to me and he says, I talked to the administration and they, they're going to get rid of this kid. They're going to, you know, they're going to do away with him. They're going to clip him. Wow. And I was a little taken aback by it. Great tape for, for the government. And uh, then he followed up with, and uh, you're going to do it. So, you know, what do you say? No. You say, I don't know. Let me have time to think about it. Let me have time to see, you know, if I want to go and become an informant. That's 10 different ways. So, again, by this time, if he's asking me to do it, he must see something. He's he's believing everything that I'm selling, all the goods that I'm selling to him. He's seeing it and he's living through me now. And uh, he says, that's it. You know, why you got a problem with what I asked you to do? What are you going to say? You know, no. Yeah, I got a problem. So he goes, be the man you were born to be. Be the man I'm teaching you to be. So from that point on, he decided that he ran to the administration and said he was going to he was going to uh, spearhead the, the hit on Louis. So you're obviously good on your toes and just thinking up uh, how to handle various situations. And you continue to do that with the prospect of having Louis whacked. And uh, I think part of that is because of the training, as you've ta- as you've discussed earlier in our conversation. But I feel like part of that is just uh, just your personality and your ability to to be that quick witted with things. But did it get to a point where you could no longer put off the prospect of having Louis whacked? And was that kind of the the point of the operation where you guys realized it was time to wind things down? Yeah, I, I mean, you're spot on with that. He um. He came to me and he wanted me to do it. And I agreed to do it. And then I was all right. Well, who do you want me to use? Do you want me to use my crew? Do you want me to use, you know, they're going to know if I'm coming at them, where it's going to get back. And, you know, I kind of led the horse to water. I, I let him come up with the idea and he came to me and he goes, no, you know what? You're right. It's not a good idea. Don't use, don't use your crew. Don't use our guys. You know who you should use? Use them guys you introduced me to out in Vegas. So who? your cousin, and another guy, Dutch. Use them. Would they do it? I don't know. Let me ask. So messages back and forth. And of course, they're willing to help me do anything, right? They're my outlaw friends. So, yeah, they bit. And, um, you know, we went on a wiretap. We tapped everybody's phones from that point forward. The government had, you know, wires up on everybody. And, and we were getting some great conversation. Now you got Charlie reporting back to the administration, calling him up and saying, yeah, he's going to get a visit. You know, these guys are going to ride in on our iron horses. And he's describing these friends that I introduced him. So he 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 basically told me use those guys, you know, and that's what we did. So it was about four months, and then it got to the point where if I didn't do it, he was getting impatient because now he want they wanted this guy gone, and it was like, when is this going to get done? When is this? Well, it's got to take time. I can't just you know what do you want me to do? And then at that point, just, just throw a grenade in, just throw a grenade in the sofa, <laughs> you know kill whoever you got to kill. Like, you know, listen, don't worry about it. I kill more people by accident. Don't, don't worry about it. Just do what you got to do. And when you got a guy like him, he'll get impatient. You know, Charlie would have gotten to the point where he goes, if you don't do it, I'll get on a plane. I'll fly out there. I'll do it. And I'll fly home and I'll be home in time for dinner. That's the kind of guy he was or is. So, um, yeah, he, he bit. And I had a story for everything. You know, give me time. Give me time. You, uh, the guys I'm using, one guy is on parole. And I came up with some really good stories. And they bit. They, they knew. I said, listen, I got this. Don't worry about it. I'll do it. I'll plan it. And what I was doing was buying the government time to build their case, to get all their ducks in a row. 
to do their, you know, their paperwork, to get everything nicely tied up, to get the administration or whoever else they want to get paper on, warrants and stuff like that. So I was buying them time. But then it got to the point where I was like, all right, listen, I got to pull the truck. I got to pull the plug on this. If I don't, he, he's either going to have somebody else do it or he's going to do it or he's going to think I don't have the chutzpah to do it. And if he thinks I don't have the chutzpah to do it, he's going to clip me. Because he's going to, again, get rid of everything, get rid of the evidence, get any anybody that knew this was going to happen. Or, like I said earlier, if he decided, no, this is not a good idea, dust settled, everybody's going to be nice and nice. So, you know, it got to the point where I was like, all right, this has to end. But, you know, before it ended, I, I knew I was, I had a conversation with Charlie and then I was due to be made. You know, he was going to propose me for membership. Case came down in March, that November that following November, he was going to be off parole and then he was going to be up to the next level. And I, he explained to me in his house that I was going to go up. He was going to propose me and it opened the books. And he even told me, don't worry about it. You know, cause I questioned him a bunch of times, like what happens when I do this? Once I get this guy and he's gone, how does that leave me? You know, I got a whole family looking at me. I clipped a May guy. Don't worry about it. They're going to be standing online, 50 medals, depending on your chest. Don't worry about it. You know? So, uh, yeah, when he explained that, I wish I could reel it back because nobody's ever been made. But, you know, would have been nice to get that medal on my chest for the government. But uh, hmm. I leave that for another another guy, an up and coming kid. You know. So you did become really close with Charlie and his girlfriend throughout this operation. Was there any remorse on your end for what was about to happen to them in the days leading up to to the inevitable arrests? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is I'm a human being. You know, I'm. I did my job. I didn't try to set anybody up. Um, you know, these guys put themselves in jail. I didn't put them in jail. They just, it just happened. I was the vehicle that drove the case. Uh, everything they were doing, you know, I, I basically, I look at it as Luigi. I saved his life, you know, cause if it wasn't me that was given a task, I, I don't know where he'd be today. Right. You know, and as far as Charlie goes, you know, he, he's a gangster's gangster, a criminal's criminal. Uh, he has no problem doing time again. Uh, I think he understands that I didn't I didn't target these guys to try to put them in jail. They dug their own graves when it came to that. And uh, but it takes its toll on you. I mean, you know, mentally, I, I built relationships with these people. I celebrated good times in their life. I celebrated good moments, fun times. I celebrated birthdays and holidays with these people. And I, I came to be loved by these people. And I came to love some of them. I came to love. I say it all the time. There was a love in my heart for Charlie. And because I, I knew how much he cared for me genuinely. And how could you not? You'd be I would be a sociopath if I if I thought any other. If I thought like a machine and went, yeah, this is these these people are just dirtbags that I'm trying to put in jail. It's not the way I saw these people. They were husbands and wives and aunts and uncles and grandchildren. You know, Charlie opens his world to me with his grandchildren, you know. Um, so everything, every aspect of their life. So in the end, when when they all came down, yeah, they're going to jail because they need to go to jail and they're criminals, but the effect it had on the family members, you know, this this person, you know, here's a grandfather who's just back in his grandson's life after so many years of being in prison. And now this is his chance. And, you know, the grandson is I took, you know, did I take that away? That's a heavy it's a heavy cross to, to carry, um, you know, being told that they love me and they care for me, you know, being told that, you know, making their food, from, you know, a certain way I want my coffee, a certain way I like my peppers and eggs or, you know, they're looking out for me like my my true family looks out for me. So that takes a, a tremendous toll on you. What was your final goodbye with Charlie like before you knew that uh, it would be the last time before he was arrested? That was a tough one. That was, uh, 
that was in his garage. Uh, but again, he always did things to remind me of the madman he could be. Um, so I walked out to the garage with him. He was seeing me off and I, I assured him that the, the hit on Louis was going to happen. And uh, it was going to be in the next day or two when I got home. I was going to leave Vegas and fly back to New York. And that was it. Things were going to start moving forward. And uh, he was so excited, you know, so excited, like a kid in a candy store. This is good stuff, good stuff. And um, I was in the garage with him and he, you know, always, listen, it's hot out here. It's dry out here. You're going back to the strip. Take two bottles of water. He always, and again, he's looking out for me with love in his heart. You know, okay, be careful. By this time, it was call me when you land. Call me. What time's your flight? Your flight's at whatever time. Okay. Call me if you get delayed. Call, I don't care what time it is when you get home. Just let me know you got there safe. It wasn't that I was going to get pinched. He just wanted to make sure I got home safe, you know, because of his caring for me. And, uh, but then he would, he would switch like a, a split second. Ah, this is good stuff. You know, this is good, good. Once is, I wish I could be there with you when this happens. I wish I, and he'd start reliving the, the murders that he did. I could tell he, I knew the details of the last hit that he did. And it was almost the words that he was using. I could see he was salivating over it, you know, mm. and it was going to be good stuff. And then thank God he reminded me of that. But my last goodbye with him was pulling out of the driveway and him giving me a hug, telling me he loved me, you know, uh, me telling him I loved him. And, you know, giving me the hit on the back of the head, you know, tapping me on the back of the neck and making sure he gave me a squeeze on the neck and, you know, caring in a caring way. And that was it. You know, I got in a car. It was part of me that wishes I had a daydream of just telling him, hey, buddy, you know, you should just run. You know, I would never do that. But, you know, what if, right? What if I just told him right now who I was? But I knew what the end result was, Trey. If I told him who I was, I would never made it out of the garage. He'd be there breaking up the floor to bury me under it. How did Charlie handle the news that you were the undercover officer that busted him? Uh, he, uh, he, he didn't throw a fit. I think, uh, he was a little taken aback by it. He was, um, you know, he was in a room and, uh, he was on camera. So I was able to see his reactions, but, uh, he was, he was a little, he was a little annoyed by it. <laughs> but it, when I left the garage that night, I said, well, what do you want me to do? You want me to call you up and tell you, you know, what do you want me to say? You want me to call you when this deed is done and Louis gone? He goes, yeah, call me up. I said, what do you want me to tell you? You know, cause we used to, again, what you said earlier, we used to call Louis the pet, you know, and, uh, well, you want me to call you and tell you, you know, uh, I had to put my girlfriend's dog down something happened. You know, the dog is gone. I had to get rid of a pet. I thought that was pretty ingenious. And he's like, nah, just call me up and tell me you washed your face. I said, what? And he goes, yeah, just call me up. I don't care two, four in the morning, whatever time it is, my time, just call me up. Charlie, it's me. I wash my face. Okay, that's what you want me to say. And uh, at the end, when he was being processed and he was in a room by himself, he was he was kind of apologizing to his wife, uh, Patty, and uh, just, you know, saying, Patty, I'm sorry. You know, again, he knew he was going away for another long bit. And then he says, ah, Giovanni, Giovanni, you know. Uh, and he just looked up at the ceiling and just said, wash your face, wash your face, Giovanni. I don't know what that meant. I don't know whether it was, you know, go kill yourself or whatever it meant, you know, but it was all, uh, he was reliving whatever he's, he, his thoughts in his head. Hmm. Were you able to pretty easily let go of the mob character once the operation was over with? Oh yeah. Piece of cake. So I thought, uh, <laughs> but no, I didn't. Um, that's when I realized now I had to reconnect and uh, I had to redeploy my own life. Right. I had to go back into my family, back to being a father. 
And uh, as I did that, I had a lot of time to spend at home because I, I was unplugged from my job. I, you know, after this case came down, I couldn't go back to the office. I couldn't go to work. I wasn't able to go to bureau. You know, I, there was no other case for me at, out of this. And uh, I had to lay low. So laying low, I was around my kids a lot. I was around my wife a lot. And I saw, you know, how uncomfortable I was at home and how uncomfortable they were around me. And then before you knew it, I saw these things that my kids were doing. You know, my son was emulating me. You know, he, he was in uh, grade school at the time. And, you know, he's getting plastic rings from, from the reading, like when kids do reading classes and, and they get like little squishy balls and the boys get the footballs and the girls get the plastic jewelry. Well, my son was going in and taking the, the rings, huh. the girls' rings and putting the gold rings on his fingers. You know, he was emulating me. He was em- Giovanni Gatto, was who he was emulating and uh, I saw that, you know, after I had some time to become myself again, I saw about he's, you know, what an impact, you know, it wasn't a pretty time in my house trying to, to reconnect with them. This this was about five years ago. Is that still an issue for you at all? Uh, reconnecting? Uh, reconnecting and, and just totally dropping the character altogether. Um, well, no, because it wasn't a I, I say character like Giovanni Gatto. He's in me. Right. You know, the Giovanni Gatto in me is who I chose not to be growing up. Now, if I chose at a young age to go the other way and go the way of being a criminal, I would have made a damn good criminal, (laughs) you know, and I would have been Giovanni Gatto, you know. Um, So he's in there. He's in me. And that's why I was so convincing in my roles and who I was as an undercover, because I wasn't portraying myself to be something I wasn't truly inside of me already. I just I just picked what side I was going to be on. I was going to be on the good guy's side. Um, so, yeah, it comes out from time to time from short tempered or tired. It'll come out. Uh, I got to reel it in if I relive it or, you know, I read certain portions of the book. Yeah, it's a defense mechanism where, mm. you know, I still walk around. I must still have a stink on me because when I walk in certain places, I, I get a certain look, you know, uh, it's a defense mechanism. You know, I'll turn it on and, you know, I'll, I'll just make sure people don't pay attention to me. But So the most infuriating part of this story is how long it took the feds to relocate you and your family. You live dangerously close to a lot of these guys who end up getting a, getting popped as a result of your work. Why was this process such a mess, Giovanni? Well, because I was a TFO. I wasn't an FBI agent. I was I was with the FBI and with the federal government for a long time, but when it all boils down to it, I was a task force officer. So, um to relocate me was a, a bit of a nightmare. They never relocated a TFO before. So I was the first one. So there was a lot, a lot of, it was a logistical nightmare. Um, again, my, my, I was blessed with a good supervisor named Anthony Zamponia. He stepped up and kind of looked out for me and, and he made everything happen. There was a nine month period of me just sitting around. Like, you know, I couldn't leave my house. So before you knew it, wait a minute, I'm a good guy. Why am I getting treated like a bad guy? Now, I understand you're trying to do right by me and my family. I understand you're trying to look out for our safety, but I, I was, I chose to be a cop. I took an, an oath, you know, almost 30 years, 25 years at that time, you know, to defend and do everything, you know, in the right way for the constitution and uphold it. Like I'm still that person. I got another 10 years left in me. You know, you want me to just retire and unplug and now what, you know, relocate my family. There's a lot of anger that started to kick up in me. And we're just sitting around for nine months, like you're sitting and doing a, a bid. You know, I felt like I was, in a, I was doing prison time or I was on a bracelet, not leaving my house. And I couldn't leave my house because the bosses, it's just the geographical makeup of where I was living. Everywhere where I was going, there was too much of a chance. You know, you, 
we talked about the soccer game. There'd be a hundred soccer games in my future if mm. I went out and did what I did. You know, um, Patty came back to New Jersey. She moved back and she relocated a short distance from, uh, you know, where I was living with my family. And it was just too much. It was way too close. And then uh, Luigi was out on, I guess, on release and he got released after his arrest. And he just ironically wound up way too close for comfort, you know, and and he was out there as well. So the, the dynamic was I couldn't stay. I had to go. So you now why take I could never put my family in that in that position. Completely understandable. Uh, so this book is uh, is out as of uh, us talking, as of, I want to say, a week or two. And you've actually made a couple of public appearances in promoting it. And this is your first announced public appearances since all this went down. Why did you decide to get back in public now, understanding that it may raise the risk of danger for both you and your family? Um, because I think the height of everything going on right now, people need to know I'm not the first one to do this type of work. This goes on every day. You know, um, there's men and women doing this type of work out there every single day. Our military's out there doing it all over the world. And I, me telling my story is therapeutic to me, but mm -hmm. at the same time, it's a way for people to understand what, what people, what family sacrifice. It's just not my sacrifice, what my kids and what my wife sacrificed, what my family sacrificed for this job. Um, and everybody, you know, the first responders across the board, it was important for me to tell it. Uh, initially, I think it was therapeutic for me and I wanted to tell a story that was a teaching. I wanted it to be something I, I you know, Jack Garcia wrote a great book, Making Jack Falcone and uh, Bobby, Bobby Delaney wrote a book, Covert. And Bobby Delaney was a, a New Jersey State Trooper and I read his book and it, it helped me along the way. It helped me when I was under with these guys because I, I kind of read it and thank God the way Bobby wrote it, I understood the mental stress that was put on him. And I knew when there were moments when I was feeling I was going to break down, well, at least Bobby, I identified with what he went through. And I wanted my book to be the same. But in the end, you know, they want you not to write a teaching book. They want you to write, you know, tell the story as is. Uh, but I think I did enough where there's a message in there for the sacrifices that people make every day. And again, I'm not the, I'm not the first to do this, and I'm certainly not the last. So. No, you're not. But I still think that this is one of the more entertaining of these types of stories that I've ever either seen. And obviously, this is not uh, a part of the silver screen just yet or read. On that note, though, this is a wild story. I mean, it is a real life version of uh, what we saw in The Sopranos. Are there plans to make this into a movie or maybe a multi-part Netflix or Amazon Prime series? Uh, not that I know of. Not, you know, unless somebody's doing it, not telling me. I, I don't have no, no plans to do such yet. You have no plans to do so. This is so. This is not something that you hope happens down the road. Uh, I don't know. Okay. I don't know where. I don't know what it brings to me. Right now, it's it was therapeutic for me. I put it out there. Um, again, I'm just I'm just having fun with the fact that it's out there, and hopefully, it will help some people understand. And that's really what it's about right now. I don't know where it's going to go. You know. Appreciate um, the honest answer there. Last question, Giovanni. Eventually, you and your family do relocate. And as you talk about, I think in the very final paragraph, it forced you to leave everyone that you knew and loved behind you, your wife and your kids. You just had to leave everybody behind. Given the choice to do it all over again, would you? I get that often. Um, and people shriek when I say yes, I would do it all over because given the childhood that I had, um, I was blessed to have the family I had and the parents I had to guide me along the way and guide me into the career that I had and really make a good egg out of a bad egg. <laughs> they did a great job. And uh, it's patting myself on the back because 
everything I went through, all the darkness I saw as a kid and all the, the, the stressors and everything I lived as a cop or survived as a cop and went through with my family and, and the loss of family members along the way. It brought me to where I am today, Trey, you know, and I don't know if I didn't do it the same way. I don't know where I would be today. Maybe I would be Giovanni Gatto, you know, maybe I would have went the wrong way. Instead of going down the right path, I would have went the wrong way. But it brought me to where I am right today, right where I am sitting here with you. And for that, I'm grateful because it made me the father I am, the husband I am. Made a lot of mistakes along the way. But, you know, we learn as long as you learn from your mistakes and you learn how to de you deal with it. That's right now. The most important thing for me is mental health for first responders. And I'm helping these guys and girls, you know, understand where that trauma and the stressors come from. You know, and if you don't heal from it, you got to identify with it and heal. Love that. I would answer. do it all over again in a heartbeat. Love that answer. Giovanni Rocco was an undercover law enforcement officer for most of his 26-year career, culminating in the successful infiltration of one of America's most violent and long-standing mafia families. And he's just written the story of that insane experience. It's called Giovanni's Ring, My Life Inside the Real Sopranos. Giovanni, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this book. I think that it strikes a number of different chords, some teaching moments, some entertaining moments, and then uh, some other moments altogether. So I really appreciate it all, man. I'm grateful to you. Thanks for the opportunity, Trey. Join me next time when I speak with skateboarder and writer Kyle Beachy on A Most Fun Thing, Dispatches from a Skateboarding Life. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and follow for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day. <laughs>